Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you, the beloved listener of Beyond Governance show here at 101.9 High FM. And thanks for tuning in on this glorious morning. I wish nothing but the best for you as you continue to make positive difference in your personal spaces and most importantly to the economy. Meanwhile, those that are languishing in abject poverty, you can make a difference by voting right. So use your might, the might of your vote, to elect a most suitable individual or a party to advance your cause. You know, in my mind, the notion of abject poverty is not a distant phenomenon, but a practical daily reality for the vast majority of South Africans, irrespective of your race, gender or religion for that matter. The mere fact that overwhelming South Africans don't have have assets or credible balance sheet, it means we live on debt, which means literally uh, most people are only a salary away from joining the pool of unemployed. Those who are hungry and those who are destitute. In my view, our saving grace is the application of the rule of law and consequence management, uh, which underpins the ethos uh, of uh, leadership or ethical leadership and meritocracy. Those are two variables that, in my mind, are valuable uh, traits that we need to follow. In the absence of quality standards and political will to follow, irrespective of the lineage, political lineage which people come from or political pedigree, we are simply just wasting our time. We can make a difference by joining those that are are taken to the streets uh, and to register their plights. I have respect for law-abiding citizens who join protests and marches to register their disdain of incompetence and corruption. In the same vein, I loathe armchair critics who just think uh, by moaning and groaning will change. The so-called good old days are long gone. We need to create new ones. We have an opportunity to create new, uh, new, new, new dawn, so to speak. And for goodness sake, if you can't do it for yourself, I'm critics, just do it for your children. For a simple reason, the country's uh, constitutional project will not deliver a just and fair society if you do not actively participate in your community and certainly outside your community. There's no amount of social media bickering about potholes, about running sewer water and street, electricity crisis, water crisis, leadership mayhem in municipalities, student debts, porous borders, rampant corruption and lawlessness, and shame punity will see, you know, the, the, the country back on its feet, which means you should be actively involved. You need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. For these kinds of issues prolong purely because most of people are just sitting on their chairs, tweeting and making all sorts of Noises that are acceptable, however, it doesn't deliver, or does it? It is the smart view. I suppose it is easier to make these kinds of pronouncements, uh, given the, the social and political complexities. However, it is important, you know, to know that we can navigate these, uh, challenges by deploying or awarding jobs on the basis of technical and competencies. We should always ask ourselves if there's any major position that is being filled in corporate level, in political space, is there fit for purpose? That's one question we need to ask ourselves. We also need to ask, ask ourselves the extent to which critical positions are supported with layers of seasoned technocrats. Because you can have a good politician in this case without backing up with credible technocrats who's a, who are competent and who are able to make those kinds of decisions based on sound research and evidence to really make it happen. We must be obsessed, in my view, with results, not just excuses. Surely we can navigate our way back to prosperity. If you look at Rwanda, they've done it. They managed to overcome the genocide. Look at uh, Taiwan, look at Singapore. 50 years ago, those countries were pretty much like South Africa in some part of African continent, and yet where they are today, which simply means, you know, whatever challenge that we are experiencing, no matter how complex they are, they are insurmountable. 
It all starts with the rule of law, one for me, and meritocracy and the quality standard, especially in the public sector. So um, in the long one that we are away of uh, introducing the topic that you'll be getting at today, uh, I'll be joined by the one and only Alan McCorky, who's the executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Before we get to that aspect of our conversation, if you missed any of our previous show, uh, simply visit our website, which is www.highfm.com, download a podcast and share your views with us via our SMS line, which is 34519, and of course, your views and thoughts are most welcome via my Twitter handle, which is at Dr. Mbele. As uh, we proceed, let's uh, quickly do the most basic and uh, pay homage or acknowledge the, the team that support this show from, from a navigation point of view. On that note, uh, thank you very much, Busima Singer, as well as Harry Kalev for your sterling work. As we, you know, get into the thrust of our conversation, which really centered around cabinet reshuffling, which took place on Monday, as expected, every single, every single sector of the economy has a particular view on this matter, as they should, because the, the announcements or the announcement by the president have a far reaching implications for the country and the economy recovery, as it were. Uh, we are joined by, as I've indicated earlier, we are joined by Ellen Mokoki, who is an executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce in Industry. Um, they've subsequently released a statement um, around the cabinet reshuffling. They have a position which uh, would like to use us as a basis for engagement. Without any waste of time, Ellen, once again, thank you very much for coming through, and we appreciate your time. Good morning, uh, Nimrod, and good morning to your listeners as well. Absolutely. The long-awaited uh, announcement by the, by the president finally happened. Uh, just your overview from a Saki perspective. Well, you know, as we said in our statement, you know, number one, of course, is to congratulate uh, the, um, the new deputy president for being appointed to that position, Mr. Paul Mashatile, as well as congratulate uh, any of the new appointees well who are making an entrance into the executive uh, ranks of cabinet. But our overview, of course, is that it, uh, it's, it's simply a, a moving of the deck chairs on, on the Titanic. We were recycling people around. We've kept a lot of people in position. And it hasn't been particularly clear to us whether there's a particular template that the government uses uh, when it looks to selection, recruitment, uh, assessing uh, candidates, and, and in, in fact, what is that process? And we've called for a scientific process given the significant challenges that South Africa finds itself and, and the fact that the problems themselves have become much more complex and in fact have moved from complex to wicked as problems. And when you, when you face that kind of situation, you need to be able to find people who are equal to the task and not to do the usual. Uh, so if you, you have a template you choose how I'm going to select people. It is not the individuals that you're concerning yourself with. It is making sure that you stick uh, to the truth in terms of here is my selection criteria on all the elements that you want to measure people on, whether you're measuring ability, whether you're measuring uh, attitude, whether you're measuring the values within the cultural framework that you obviously would have designed. And it has to be very codified because you can't just be random uh, at this particular point in time in, in South Africa's uh, development and challenges. We're in the 21st century now. We can't just say people so-and-so know so-and-so, then we're going to appoint them and put them into a position. Uh, there is a way in which you do uh, recruitment and uh, selection and uh, obviously the assessment of, of, of people, including you know all these things that some people would say, why am I doing this? But... If you want to be able to do that, you know, including things and not limited to things like psychometric tests so that you can check quite a number of aspects on which you want to measure. But it begins with you being in very clear in terms of what you're trying to achieve. And, and, and given these particular challenges, quite clearly, we don't know how, for instance, if you look at performance management, whether the government uses that. And if they do, 
how would it arise uh, that there are departments that are clearly not performing, that are really struggling with uh, poor performance for, for years on end, and yet the incumbent uh, ministers have actually kept uh, their positions? I'm glad that you raised that particular point because it's something that I it only I found always found it's baffling, and but we'll just um, open up a little bit more um, just in a, in a, just in a second. But you also raised a few interesting points um, about uh, what you define as wicked problem, which requires men and women who are equal to the task. So based on the the cohort, the new cohort of ministers and deputy ministers. Which one, you, which portfolio do you think uh, require more zeal, uh, given the fact that, you know, the incumbent are more likely to have a serious challenge um, in your in your mind? Well, you know, what, one of the things that we've deliberately chosen to do is never to comment on individuals, but to comment on the top. Yeah, and its challenges, and 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 the, and let the the, the president and the, the audience make their own minds in terms of the meaning uh, thereof. Many of these uh, jobs are serious jobs. Uh, for instance, um, you you look at things like trade and industry. We're developing now the Africa Growth of uh, a Free Trade Agreement. And, and we need to be able to move very rapidly in that particular space in terms of making sure that we are able to sell more of our goods outside and we're able to prevent some of the dumping of other countries' goods here. The, illicit, the importation of illicit goods coming into the country impacts both trade and industry as much as it, in, in, it impacts uh, immigration as, as much as it impacts finance from a SARS perspective. So everything is interrelated because what you're addressing, you're addressing an ecosystem. You look at education, for instance. Education isn't just one aspect. Yes, we see... Uh, girls and, and, and boys walking around the streets of Bromfontein protesting and complaining about the fact that they don't have any accommodation and they're not being registered for whatever reasons that may be. It's an embarrassing situation, frankly speaking, in 2023, when we know we are supposed to be uh, aggressively addressing the issue of the building of skills uh, so that uh, the country itself, forget about the individual child, or the individual person who's supposed to be uh, getting an education, so that the country itself is in a much more better position to attack its development uh, objectives. And yet we're still struggling with a conceptual understanding, something that we've known for the last 30 or even 28 years. It's going to happen. Many of these kids are going to come from very poor backgrounds. Their parents are not necessarily going to afford to pay uh, for their tuition as well as their accommodation, we know how many kids are getting into primary school today. We know how many will uh, finish high school. We know every year how many people are in grade 10, 11, and 12. And then when people finish school, we don't have an idea of where exactly they should actually be placed. That's a function of very, very poor planning. Now, who is responsible for that? The entire government system is responsible for that because whilst you need public works to be building buildings, you need the school education authorities to be able to coordinate their programs properly. You need basic education to understand what they are doing and what's going to happen to their own product. You need higher uh, education to have a very clear understanding of what's going to happen. You need science and technology. So all these areas are in their in their very nature very much interrelated in, in, in 2023. You need the Department of Communications to have a very clear understanding of where is the high-speed data being installed to wire South Africa wall-to-wall -wall so that Things like education from an access point of view ought not to be things that are very, very complicated. Many of these kids would easily have been in a position to attend these classes online if they have access to the gadgets and they've got uninterrupted connectivity from wherever they may well have been in a way that is very interactive. So this chaos of lack of proper planning is an indication of an entire ecosystem that is actually struggling to respond to the challenge that is here, and not only the challenge that is here, but the challenge of articulating the vision of this particular future in terms of where you're going. Safety and security, another very critical area we heard from, and I'm not suggesting that everything that he said was the truth, because it all has to be investigated and checked. We heard from the former ESCOM CEO, 
talking about gangs that are running the rule in, in, in ESCOM procurement, people sabotaging the system. We hear similar stories with Transnet Rail, cable being stolen, uh, cable theft on the rail, people damaging the rail network because some are doing so because they think that it will give uh, di divert uh, uh, the, the, the movement of goods via rail back onto the tracks because some of them own tracks. Some of them apparently, and these are all allegations, suggestively are doing that because they lost the tender. We see the same things that have happened with Prasa. You've seen so many of our stations being completely and totally destroyed in the railway network. How do things like that actually happen in a country where safety and security is supposed to be there? We, we shouldn't be relying on private security for some of these things because we are incurring additional costs and burdening the economy with things that should be a public good, should be a public service that's coming directly from government because we are paying taxes. This is paying taxes. I can't be paying you taxes so that you can make sure you offer me a public good, but at the same time, I'm now paying for my own private security. Absolutely. We see um, teachers themselves. We see teachers themselves who are teaching, supposed to be teaching children, not themselves preferring to send their own kids to the public schools. They want to go to all the private uh, schooling providers like Yukiro and, and private schools. That in itself is saying that there's an entire ecosystem that is dysfunctional. On that note, let's take a, a quick break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance, and I'm joined by Alan McCook, who's an executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We are putting our heads together around the cabinet reshuffling, and, you know, and he has raised a number of pertinent issues in relation to what ought to have been an ideal substitution um, that would enable these ministers um, to address what he defined as wicked problem, uh, suggesting that the, the there's, there is really much fit for purpose in terms of the people that have been um, elected in those or nominated to those particular positions. One key issue that he raised, which I find quite interesting and worthy of probing a little bit more, is that of performance management system. Um, surely, if you have a very good dashboard in terms of performance management, based on different portfolios, you would you would ordinarily have sufficient data or your decisions would be informed by that particular data, which would warrant you to deploy your resources based on the needs, um, as it were. So private, I mean, uh, you know, Saki, uh, Ellen, I would imagine, have access to, to government and they from time to time engage with the president, even not the president himself, what is your take on first and foremost? Are you are you able to access the performance management contracts or system which government used to assess different ministers? And and if you if you have, what are the gaps that you are seeing to address the very same issues of uh, proper planning, to address the same issues of, of of data, to address the proper planning of safety and security? Well, you know. Uh... Uh, Nimrod, the, the thing always starts with a template. In other words, you know, as in all other organizations, I have never seen myself, and I'm not suggesting that it doesn't exist, but I haven't necessarily seen the, the actual template that the government uses to look at performance management and, and to evaluate and assess. But these things are supposed to be related. In other words, you can't just have a performance management system without having a very clear template in terms of what are you? What do you use to to select and recruit and retain people? So these things need to go hand in hand. And 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 I will give you an example. Culture is something that overlays everything. And by culture, sometimes people get confused. They think we're talking about something else. Culture is just something that says this is the way we do things around here. And yet I agree and I've always insisted that culture is something that must be codified. In other words, it's a mistake of culture that is sitting in people's heads and other people don't really know what culture is. The idea of having a culture and values journey in an organization to embed and to get buy-in and to have staff participate in what that particular culture ought to be is one of the very first critical building blocks when you do this particular piece of work. 
Uh, and I'll give you an example. Let's say, for instance, you design a culture uh, set and you say one of the elements of that particular culture is that we're going to hire people who are technically competent. You then need to have a very clear idea of defining what that means in writing, okay, and share that understanding in the organization. What we mean by technically competent people, we mean the following things. We mean, for example, people who have qualified at a particular level of maybe qualifications, technical, educational, whatever the case might be. We need people, and sometimes we, we need people maybe who are moving themselves towards that particular level. We need people who can demonstrate that by either an assessment tool that we're using based on things like X, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, or whether you're going to do that in an ethnographic way where you meet with people and, and sort of like interview them. We know exactly the aspects on which we want to evaluate them on that particular on that particular score. You may say culture here means we want to hire people who have an organized mind. You know, sometimes people are talented, but the reason they don't actually get to do the task and finish them is because they lack organizational skills and they don't have a mind that is very organized. You know, there is something that we call mind wandering and people walk and, um, and they do the task and then they lose concentration and they start walking around like you're not getting two hours worth of productivity because the mind is all over the place instead of being clearly organized because they have a very structural approach of doing things. I'm saying all these things are things that must be codified, things like understanding complexity, how an organization is complex, how each part in the ecosystem works with each other, the internal organization, how it relates to the external organization. And you, you, you can say, I want people who've got an execution. That's culture. Values are something that goes hand in hand with culture. And it's a mistake sometimes for companies to have only values that relate only specifically to performance and not to ethics. So a combination is necessary where when you want, you want to create an excellent an organization that has got excellence in, in terms of customer service, that's great. But you also need to have other ethical values like things like integrity and respect, you know, and, 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 and things like that. So a combination of those things, they then lead you into the design process of, oh, now that I have a very clear idea of what my culture and my values ought to be, because obviously you have started with your objectives of what you're trying to achieve and your vision, whatever the case might be. Now you have a culture. You can then go very easily into the design of that particular template around. Now we know that we're looking for people like this. We are going to design our system in this particular way systematically so that it responds to what we're looking for performance management then follows that because now you know what you're performance managing. In other words, did we not say that we wanted people who are technically competent? Did we not say that we want people who have an execution mentality? Did we not say that these are the objectives that must be achieved? Now that we've done that and we've actually clearly selected people correctly and recruited people correctly and we're retaining the right people and we're uh, uh, incentivizing or rewarding uh, uh, compensating and recognizing people correctly, and we've created the right culture in terms of the environment where people are working. We are now able to performance manage people on the basis of that particular list. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And what are the consequences if you are not? Do we need an intervention from a training point of view? Do we need to uh, tough you out? So that's what I'm saying, and I'm sorry to be giving you this long thing, but it's a very, very important area that we need to understand that it's systems that give you the results. People respond or, or the, the engagement of people, they are being engaged by the system. And I'm not saying that the system by its very nature is rigid. You can have a lot of innovative elements and flexibility and adaptability around it, but it doesn't necessarily change the congruence of that system in terms of the effectiveness and impact of how you want it to actually run. I couldn't agree with you more um, on the number of touch points that you've made. Uh, Pat, me the most important thing that I'm picking up from your end is the extent to which uh, culture can eat a good strategy. You know, let me let me bat down my my supposition here. Um, you have indicated to us that the ESCOM, uh, former ESCOM CEO made damning allegations on procurement and, uh, you know, irregularities and fraud and whatever you, you know, you may think of. We've seen the same thing at Transnet. We've seen the same allegations at Prasa. We've seen the same allegations level against, you know, politicians or some of uh, executive in these entities, which 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 also means it doesn't matter. Assuming the government have had a very good template, 
that looks at meritocracy, that looks at competency, and all these good things that you are putting down being 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 actually done. But they, they, it's almost like a lost battle if you're going to have these templates, application of the templates in a uh, unfertile environment, in organizations, organizations that there's a sense of impunity, in organizations where there's no sense of accountability. Surely that just does not make sense. And, and hence we see ourselves being, you know, recycling all people or not seeing good quality results purely because we have good men and women. However, you know, our quality standards are shoddy, not only to shoddy, but sub sub minimal. Uh, because the organizational culture is such that there's no accountability. Uh, people get to meetings, ministers get to meetings, uh, there's no follow through, there's no sense of agency, purely because culture is such that we are here to just talk, but nobody's interested in results. Well, I think that, 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 that we, yes, we, we're saying that that's why you, you need to have a system. It's the system that eliminates that, that the wrong people. And uh, including things that you're mentioning, like impunity or malfeasance or, you know, people sabotaging a system or people walking slowly, productivity and not caring and having a wrong attitude and uh, just creating a lot of, uh, of a toxic environment. All these things are resolved by a performance management based on your template on selection, based on your culture, based on the values that you have. Because if you've got the right values, you the people that on top of the organization by their very nature, their job is to look after the values. Their job is to look after the culture. They necessarily don't have to be worrying themselves too much about operations because if your culture says, I hire technically competent people, people who have an ex execution mentality, people who, are, who understand complexity, as an example, of course, you can have quite a number of different things that you want to have in your, in your menu. And, and people who've got an organized mind. You don't have to worry about these things that we're worrying about now, the things about mm -hmm. malfeasance, because number one, we hire the right person. If we have a culture and a value set that says we hire people who have high level of integrity and who have respect, and, 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 and then, and even if you add the other elements of, um, even if you, 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 you add the other elements of, um, innovation and excellence, whatever the case might be, you measure people on those things. Was you can't just have a set of values and culture, but they just don't show up in the performance management system. So that's mm -hmm. the point that I was trying to link between culture, values, and performance. That culture, in fact, gives you the technical requirements of what you need in an individual, but it also gives you the set and the environment of an organization. As we say, you know, you you either you are either a thermostat or a thermometer, right? So. The, the, the performance management system is the thermometer, but the culture and the values, they are the thermostat in, in, mm -hmm. in that they set the temperature. And then you then have a thermometer, which is basically the, the top management who are actually measuring where and, and how far are we with that. And so we can't necessarily uh, escape, escape that. And I was making another point. Uh, uh, maybe I, I, I forgot to make another point in that, you know, there is this thing in, in senior executive leadership that is referred to as the flow effect. So you look at organizations. If, for instance, an organization has, as one of its criteria, IQ uh, in terms of selection. For instance, we hire people who are smart here. We hire people who are really, really bright. And then you draw, you draw a graph, you do a, your, your, your X and Y axis. So you have IQ on the one side, and then you've got emotional intelligence on the other side. What you'll find is that the variance on IQ in an organization that emphasizes IQ is going to be very narrow between people. In other words, you know, everyone wants to use CCU or VETS or Cambridge or whatever the case might be. All these people are very smart. You're not going to find too much of a wide variance between people because IQ is one of the things that we hire on. So that's the flow effect. However, the people who are going to be the high performers, the superstars, are not necessarily going to come from IQ because all that IQ does, it allows you to get into the room. So the people who are going to be superstars are going to come from emotional intelligence and across all the four levels or levels of emotional intelligence in self-awareness, self-management, because these two, they give you self-mastery, uh, empathy, as well as social skills. Now you have to measure those things because you are saying, I want to hire people who are really going to be super performers, 
So if I'm, I now know that I'm going to hire people on IQ and, and I'm going to make this a bad example of ESCOM again. And if you go to ESCOM, you'll generally find that the majority of people, especially on the engineering side, are people who are very clever, very smart, because they've all, you know, studied in the same universities and it's not, it's not easy to pass a, a BSc engineering, mechanical, uh, sorry, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering degree at places like VETS or UP is very tough. So a lot of those people who really do finally graduate, uh, you are not going to question their IQ. They'll walk into an organization like ESCOM. What's going to make them successful is not the fact that they're clever. What made them to get into the organization is, in fact, that they're clever. What makes them successful is the level of emotional intelligence. Now, your training and your development must now respond to that, because some people are unaware of some of the blind spots that they may actually be having, okay? They came in on IQ. They are really, really good. The university has told them that they're actually excellent, but they go into an organization that is an ambidextrous, complex organization that has got problems that are running away from everybody else. And if you have people who don't have social skills, who have people who don't necessarily have self-awareness and self-management, who don't have, who lack empathy, they will actually miss the boat royally. And they will not actually understand that they cannot actually be effective in a job of that particular nature. And I'll give an example because unfortunately the individual went high profile themselves. You couldn't possibly be a CEO of ESCOM. And you are hearing for the first time from one of your key stakeholder ministers, the Minister of Energy, that he actually thinks that you are just a policeman. I'm making that as an example. I don't know really the facts, but I would say, wow, that's very surprising. Because if you have the emotional intelligence piece as a senior executive in an organization like that, one of the elements of what you're going to identify nice and early is that I have a community, I've got a community of key stakeholders. So the Minister for Energy, and I'm not saying the Minister for Energy was right or wrong, I'm not making that point. I'm making the point that the relationship between such an organization, a top person, and the other top person should have been something that is done all the time. And I'm not suggesting that it wasn't done. Maybe they did meet all the time. Maybe he himself was a surprise. Why is the minister having these views? Yet I met with him yesterday. But I would think that it would be a tragedy if... He had never met with him because that then would have been one of the key skills. You can't be surprised that the union wants to have a strike because we're supposed to be meeting regularly with the top key stakeholders in the union movement, with the top key stakeholders in the staff department. You need to be visiting all these power plants because the area of social skills and the area of empathy and self-management and self-awareness are always going to be very critical in terms of driving that level of performance across the board, even in complex organizations. So, that's the point that you have to finally get to in terms of this particular area. Thank you very much for those uh, insights and observations. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. Uh, this is Beyond Governance. I'm joined by Anand Mokoki, who is the executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We are going through very interesting uh, issues pertaining to cabinet reshuffling. And before we took the break, one issue that I've picked up is the, I suppose, the balancing act between, you know, IQ and EQ. You know, um, one's intellectual and the other one is obviously more emotional. Uh, side of things and he's of the view that uh, super player, if you're looking for super performance either as a minister or as an executive across the board essentially is to personally look at uh, those individuals who have accumulated uh, you know emotional intelligence so to speak because they are self-aware they they can drive they are empathetic and they understand the broader social network and the extent to which each of the stakeholders is is has its own DNA, which means if you understand the union's uh, mindset, you you are going to engage on the basis of your understanding of the union mindset, and you are likely to have a, a positive rapport because you you are more sympathetic um, or you are aware of the ideological quantum, so to speak. So that's something that I've also felt it was quite useful point that he's also made. And an example about what what some of the issues that personally would ordinarily would have been resolved at ESCOM by the former executive um, and which failed dismally purely because there wasn't a good sense of emotional intelligence. I mean, coming back to that point of emotional intelligence, 
I'm not sure whether the director was able to have one-on-one -on -one with with Mpumakwana, the the CEO and the chairperson of the board, before he went on air making those kinds of allegations. Because my expectation, I've always maintained that if the director exercised a bit of emotion and intelligence, surely he would have got uh, had a, a sidebar with his chairperson and said, listen, I've been invited to uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the television station, and these are the topics. These are the issues that are going to be addressed. So don't be surprised if you get a call from one of the station asking you your position as the chairperson of the board. So those are some of the issues which accentuate the significance of somebody who 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 has a must substantial if not substantive, most intelligence. IQ is there, there's no doubt about it, because nobody can get to, to those positions without IQ. But if you have subminimal or perceived sub subminimal uh, emotional competencies, it does bring a whole lot of issues into, uh, into question. But as we move forward, Alan, one issue that the president made in his statement, perhaps maybe you could share your thoughts on it, was that, you know, the time to, you know, for him, it, he did not want to overhaul uh, the cabinet, purely the sixth administration, purely because we don't have much time left in terms of um, what what is left for the new election. Your take on that, the fact that there's very few executives that are, are, are part of the, exec, of, of the National Assembly, of which ordinarily we would have expected a, an overall change a lot earlier. Your take on that, please. Well, I'm not so. I don't know. I'm not so sure whether he's the one who said so. Other people are saying so, but it doesn't matter who said it. It doesn't make no sense. Uh, the the thing that imposing a limit or a time on yourself is a is a self what people refer to as a self limiting a problem because you are creating a problem that didn't actually exist. You know, w when is it the right time um, to do what? You know, there's no right time to to not act. The, the 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 time to act is yesterday, so you can't say I'm not acting today because I'm waiting to see what I'm going to do next year. When you've got a pending platform issues today, so you need to fix the problem today. So that cannot make any sense whatsoever. Whoever may have said it, I don't know. The president said so. I didn't hear that myself. Uh, or those who are explaining his rationale of why he kept those that he kept and why he couldn't do the whole scale changes that may have been required, or maybe. He was just restricted by the fact that there wasn't going to be much additional talent that he would have found within the same pot that he was looking at. Because that's also another issue that we haven't actually dealt with in terms of what other options would he have had. And maybe we may get to the point where we realize that for South Africa, maybe the issues are much more structural and systemic in terms of how we are able to expand or not expand the pool of talent from which he can actually appoint, unlike, say, an executive president like an American president or Donald Trump, where they don't necessarily have to appoint from the same party. Uh, they can go outside. They don't even have to appoint from any member of Congress. They can actually go anywhere in society and find a highly skilled person. So maybe that's the stage that we've actually reached in South Africa in terms of if the pool is restricted because it's a, it's a, it's an insular pool. It, you know, it's the same people who get elected and, and therefore they may not necessarily have been elected on the basis of the kinds of competences that are required and skills that are required to deal with the problems of today because they were, you know, elected by a different, uh, uh, support base that may not have had an appreciation of the difficulties that need to be now tackled. That may then require you to take a step change, but we can't say, well, we're restricted by something. <laughs> Whatever something is restricting us, we are the people who are in charge in terms of changing that. And that's why people, even in, in big companies, are able to go back to their AGMs and request that the, the shareholders change the, uh, the MOI of the company because the board realizes there are certain things that we're trying to do, but we're actually unable to do them. And uh, in terms of Section 16 of the Companies Act, the board of directors does not have the power to change the MOI of the company, uh, you then have to go and call a shareholders meeting, get a 75% vote and actually change that MOI. Similarly in South Africa, well, maybe we can't get the right people within the ruling party. Okay, so what are we going to do? In other words, as the president was saying, I can hire two ministers or maybe two deputies from outside of people who are not in the, in the assembly, whatever the case might be. But maybe then we need to have a step change in the constitution of the republic mm -hmm. to say, ah, uh ah, -uh, 
this one is not working for us because the system that we have to elect people into political parties is restricting us from getting the talented people. So therefore, let's go get our two-thirds, whatever, majority uh, support in parliament. We've done about, what, 17, maybe 18 uh, constitutional amendments in South mm. Africa. Uh, the last one I remember was the floor crossing one. So that doesn't mean that this one cannot be done. And I think that other political parties would also be very willing to support it so that you're not restricting the president in terms of the pool of talent. Absolutely. But I think what is also key there, Alain, is the fact that what I'm picking up is that there isn't a, there isn't a sense of agency because, you know, the platform is burning and it's been burning for some time. Surely for you to move with speed in as much as you have to recognize the skills and, and capacities that are required, you know, you also have give the impression that you are not just delaying and you, you, you know, you, you addressing critical uh, skills gaps that are there in your in your executive, but perhaps maybe the president has had a good thought about it, um, and, and and let's just wait and see the outcome of the new officials that he has uh, had on his side. But there's one that is that is quite baffling as we you know gravitate towards the end of our show is the is is the minister of um, electricity. And we know that we've got the Minister of Energy, we've got the Minister of uh, State Enterprise, we now have got the Minister of Electricity. And according to the President's statement, he says the, you know, effectively the Minister of Electricity uh, will respond to, uh, will respond to the energy crisis and will have a, a political responsibility, authority and control over all critical aspects of energy, of energy action plan. I don't see happening when you've got a Minister of Energy. I don't see happening when you've got Minister of State Enterprise. I don't see have, you know, how how would, would this work in your mind, having this individual, having to still have to navigate between, between the two very powerful ministers or ministries? You know, it appears to be quite a, a complex uh, a problem uh, that's going to cause you know, a lot of strain and stress in terms of accountability. You know, there, there are these two things that we, we often talk about that, you can't give someone responsibility. You can't hold someone accountable if you don't give them responsibility. And what that means is that I can't say you're performing or not performing on a particular role if you don't have the ultimate responsibility for decision-making in that particular role. You, you, you know, We've raised the same issue, for instance, when it comes to how you interpret and how to articulate and interpret the role of a, a minister who looks after a particular SOE. Uh, whether it's in transport or energy or whatever that, that might be, vis-a-vis uh, -vis that of the board, because you have a board that has been appointed by uh, by the shareholder. Um, and then you want to argue very strongly that from a responsibility, accountability point of view, you want the board to be solely responsible for the appointment of the CEO, not the minister. Okay, uh, Shareholders don't go out appointing CEOs in the private sector. You know, that job is left to the board for this particular purpose of accountability and responsibility so that we know who has who we hold accountable. So if we are the shareholders, we put the board to make sure that they run the organization properly. If there's a, a problem there, we as shareholders are going to remove the board. We don't remove the CEO, remove the board. If the board is doing its job, it will remove the CEO because they didn't hire the right CEO, but we give the board the ultimate responsibility to hire the person that they are actually going to be holding accountable. Similarly, we give the CEO the responsibility to hire his or her top team that he or she will hold accountable because you are responsible for those people. So if you then put in an electricity minister and you then have a very, a, a, a not, not a very clearly defined uh, set of objectives from a responsibility point of view, what is this that you are going to hold them accountable for if they don't have responsibility? But he did say something about Section 97 where he's going to transfer some of the powers to the Minister of Electricity. So we would have to wait and see what those responsibilities are. But given what we know now, where the power generation, Minister of Electricity, the huge amount of power that's coming out of South Africa is going to come from ESCOM. And then you have a Minister of Electricity, and then at the same time you've got a Minister for Public Enterprises, and then you've got to have a Minister for Energy. It's going to be a, a, a very difficult thing to manage, especially given the 
the the the existing implied personalities that are in those jobs was whether you like to accept it or you don't the two ministers that are currently there they are some of the strongest from a personality uh, point of view minister gordon has a very strong personality as you all know uh, very experienced being around the blocks for too many years mr matasha same very strong personality huge and I, i'm gonna make a football example by the way about this thing if you permit me that as we speak earlier on about bringing in the elements of how you hire people, uh, because we're addressing this very complex problem of, of responsibility and accountability and then performance, and I'm raising this issue around fit and personalities and, and, and culture and values and all that kind of stuff, is that, you know, even if you get the, the best people, if you don't create the right environment and the values for them to succeed, they will not succeed. So there is this, uh, there is this uh, video that I saw a few months ago of Robin Van Persie. If you recall, he, he was a, a top striker at Arsenal and then he was signed by Alex Ferguson to, to join Man U. And he tells the story of his engagement at Man United and what, uh, you know, they call him the gaffer, and what the gaffer, the, 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 the manager, Sir Alex, says uh, uh, to the other players, especially the midfield players like Paul Scholes, who was one of the top midfielders, obviously, for, for United and England at the time. He says, he says, Scholes tells the story. He says, he calls them and he says, uh, RVP is here, Robin Van Persie. He says, this guy is going to win you the league, but you need to give him the ball. And he says, then I promise you, if you don't pass him the ball, you will not play. He just says that. <laughs> you don't pass him the ball, you will not play. Okay. So anyway, they all laugh about the story and they make sure that every time they get a ball, they look for him if he's available. And then, and of course, they, they went and, and, and won the league. And compare and contrast that with the story that's told by Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who was also one of probably the top five strikers. But according to Zlatan, he was the best striker in the world. He, he, he went to join Barcelona, if you recall, at the time. And, uh, and he didn't have a very joyful period there. And one of these things that he tells, he says that he goes to Barcelona. He says he was very, very, very surprised that one of the best passers of the football in the world at the time, Andres Iniesta, you all recall him, he scored that uh, famous uh, World Cup winning goal for them here in South Africa. He says that one of the greatest passers of the ball could not find him. He, he says Iniesta could not find the biggest and tallest player in the Barcelona team, referring to himself. Yet Iniesta could find with a pass the shortest and smallest player in Leo Messi in the Barcelona team. He went to complain to uh, Pep Guardiola, the current city coach, who was then at Barcelona at the time, about what's going on here. He says, but Pep didn't do anything about it. Eventually, he left Barcelona for this and the other reason. But the point I'm making with culture, here are two individuals, two top strikers in the world. One goes into an environment that supports him and he flourishes. The other goes into an environment where the culture and the values are very different. The leader of that particular organization does not say, uh uh, you're going to give him the ball, otherwise, you, Iniesta, or you, Xavi, uh, or you, Busquets, so you will not actually play. He doesn't do anything about it. And that player bombs and he actually has to leave. That's the answer that I'm giving you about someone like uh, uh, Dr. Hosey, smart, highly talented man, at least from a smart point of view. But if he's not going to get the support and the values and the culture doesn't allow him to succeed, he will not actually succeed. You hit it on the nail, Alan, particularly in the context of the what is left in the duration of the current um, CIFA administration. Because, you know, you've currently pointed out that there's significant personalities. Gordon, Gordon Pravin Godani is a, is a very strong-headed uh, uh, minister who has been around the block, and so is Montage. So now we put uh, Horsi in the middle, and we do not have enough time to build the rapport, which which I don't, which 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 I still think is a prerequisite for any successful delivery of this new ministry on electricity. So by the time they get together, by the time there's this, the transfers of responsibilities to the ministry, there's going to be two and four, and Given or give or take six months, you know, to a year when these uh, ministers are finding their feet, we are already into the new election. 
what has been the what has been the result? So these are some of the issues that we 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 quite baffle around when we see these drastic changes. And whereas whereas you know we don't see sufficient energy, sufficient agency to try and address. Well, perhaps maybe the president has applied his mind as he always does, um, and like we can only hope and and see that the trio. Will, man, will, will turn around. If, if the two, Godan and Mataji fail to turn around the electricity crisis, one person, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. It doesn't matter how smart he is at an IQ level, but also an EQ level, the odds are certainly staggered against him. But that's my view. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here, Ellen. It has been absolutely fascinating to hear your, your thoughts and views around some of these very complex issues that uh, bedeviling uh, the public sector in the context of the cabinet reshuffle, uh, which the president announced on Monday. Thank you, Nimrod, and uh, thank you to your listeners. Good morning. Thank you, sir. That was Ellen Mokoki, the chief executive at uh, South African Chamber of Commerce Industry, giving us a very interesting observation and insights from the perspective of uh, Saki on what are some of the ramifications um, uh, which we need to look out for in, in, for the president to deliver on his State of the Nation address um, as he had made uh, interesting changes in the cabinet. And, and what is quite key from Ellen's perspective is, again, the whole issue of culture. Uh, and if the culture, if the, if, you know, the culture is not clearly defined, if the leadership from the president does not, you know, set the tone of the agency and the significance of what the reshuffling is all about, we are not likely to address uh, the crisis as it were. But it's just a matter of time. Let us wish all the new executive um, that has been appointed by the president all the best in the uh, portfolios. And we hope they are equal to the task. As Ellen has pointed out, these are wicked moments, wicked which require men and women uh, who would work outside the normal status quo. You know, this is not an easy job. I'm sure the, the new CEO of ESCOM is already sweating before he's even started. But be it as it may, we're going to have to leave it here. It has been absolutely beautiful to have these kinds of thought-provoking conversations with Ellen, which I certainly hope has made a difference in your perspectives in terms of how you look at things henceforth. Let's do this again next week. Shalom. Beyond Governance was brought to you by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making.